0: Thank you all for tuning in for another exciting episode of Game Gurus. As we are in between seasons but still giving you high quality content, we have a special guest episode today. Um, I think it's going to be a very powerful episode, one of the most powerful episodes of Game Gurus. And I am very happy to be with Michelle today. Michelle, can you introduce yourselves to Game Gurus?
1: Sure, and and thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Michelle Anhang, and I am a leadership and life coach. I specialize in um, providing support and strategy to individuals and families who are living with mental health challenges.
0: That's, that's deep. We, we are <laughs> going to dive into all of that.
1: Let's dive.
0: Okay, okay so leadership is very important to me. I consider myself a learning leader. Um, it's been a part of my journey, I would say for the better part of, um, really even since, since high school, but I I really doubled down on it. Um, from about the time I was 18 till, um, now it's, I love it. Uh, growing in my leadership skills, um, trying to embrace my particular leadership style and help others uh, reach their leadership um, potential as well and just collaborate with others that's kind of my style what does leadership mean to you because we Mm -hmm. hear that word now more than ever and I think it means something different to different spectrums of people
1: I, I completely agree and I, I love what you were saying about you know how, how young you were when you started exploring leadership because I have to say like I did not see myself as a leader at that young of an age I, I think it took me somewhere into like my mid-40s before <laughs> actually maybe only a couple of years ago before I really started seeing myself um, in that way um, and I had taken a leadership Pro, I had done the leadership program. It was a very intense ten-month program, and um, their their mantra was, um, "Leaders are responsible for their world, and we are all leaders. So essentially, we all have a responsibility for our little piece on this planet of the people around us, and you know, and what's going on, and, and having the impact um, that we can, whatever our purposes that we discover. So. Um, when I think about leadership and, you know, the leadership coaching I'm doing, it's really about taking full ownership of your life, of your purpose, of what you're meant to be doing here on earth, and then going out and having the courage to do it, in, you know, in whatever way you can. I, th-
0: I think that's important. I think people get tied into, um, or they zoom in or zero in on an impression or image that they have of what a leader is supposed to be like and how they fit that mold that they don't focus on leading where you can
1: yeah yeah it's just like what do you take a stand for you know that's it take a stand for something and and talk about it (laughs) that's that's a form of leadership but it's really just yeah having that firm belief in something and, and wanting. Wanting to see the world become just a tiny bit better. And even right. again, like your, your small piece of the world that, you know, can have your, a huge yeah. impact on on everything else and everybody else. I mean, you know, parents in their own way, they're, they're leaders too. Like, you know, they're raising kids that are going to go out and do big things in the world, hopefully. And so, yeah, how are we leading by example in that way?
0: And, and I think leadership becomes intrinsic in parenting
1: yeah I agree
0: and and I I don't think people always realize that
1: yeah (laughs) I can speak as a parent I've got I've got two kids Well, they're now young adults and yeah I I didn't I didn't get that
0: so you you also say that you work in terms of support and strategy what do those terms mean because I also think that people use those terms a lot and Mm means different to different people
1: yeah so so essentially the the people that i'm working with are family members of somebody who has a severe mental illness or it could be an addiction and for those of us who um have a family member in that kind of situation we know that you know it, it impacts the entire family the mental illness tends to um know affect everybody it's it's not isolated to the one person there are different ways that it impacts people and so you know and and i find that you know like depending on what the mental illness is but you know it, it could be if it's particularly if it's severe um it's kind of like being on a roller coaster for that individual and then what happens is the entire family kind of jumps on the roller coaster with them and you know experiences the ups and downs with that family member and so the coaching that i'm doing is is really helping the family members get off the roller coaster um, to take care of themselves so that they can then show up fully for that family member who needs them who is suffering from some kind of mental illness or addiction Um, you know and doing it from a place of love not from trying to fix them not for you know not from a place of being completely depleted because that's often where where we go and, and what ends up happening. And then there are also people that I work with who um, who have maybe mild um, mental health challenges. It could just, you know, it could be depression, it could be anxiety, it could be ADHD. So teaching, uh, you know, so like I think in our culture we kind of have this idea that like, you know, you, Go to your doctor, you get medication, and that's, that's it. That's where it ends. And hopefully, the medication works, and sometimes it doesn't. And then you just try new medication. But there are so many other tools that we can use, particularly one that I, I teach is mindfulness. And so, there are so many tools that we can use to connect ourselves, you know, the, our mind and, and body to learn, you know, what our particular symptoms are before they get to the point that we're like knee deep in an episode. So just really catching these things, having that awareness, leading a healthier lifestyle, um, it's it's the it's the big picture. It, so I'm I'm working in that area. So the support comes from just you know also there's there's shame there's stigma for many people. So I'm that person that often they feel is the only person that they can talk to about what's going on with them, and I provide that safe environment. And then the strategy is either you know what are the changes that you can be making in your life to you know, ease your own symptoms or what are the, you know, what, what do you need to do to take care of yourself? While, you know, while your family member is sick or, you know, if they're not getting treatment, then what are the steps that you need to do to help them help themselves? So there there's a lot of, a lot of strategizing, a lot of, um, big emotions, a lot of worry. And sadly, there, there's so much stigma that people don't often want to talk to the people closest to them about it.
0: And so are you building that foundation where they do have access to have open and honest conversations with oh, the yeah. people nearby? And what does that process look like?
1: Yeah, so so sometimes it it's, could be a matter of, you know, because, I mean, so there's the element of, you know, seeking support. And often we just kind of open up to the first person who's closest and they might not be the best person to be talking to, you know, maybe... They they're, you know they have their own stuff around mental health challenges. Maybe they, they have their own and they're not really you know wanting to go there. So it, I talk about using discernment, about really carefully selecting who are the people that really can support you so that you're not going and talking to hundred people and you're also not then feeling worse because some people just can't be with that. So sometimes that's just looking at, okay, who are the people in your life that you might be able to talk to? And then we talk about you know who they are and what the qualities are and what kind of support they might be able to give you, how you want to approach the person, and and really seeing like is this the right person, and you know is it you know and and how how do you want to bring the subject up with them, you know I, I have one client whose partner um, has you know has has um, severe bipolar disorder, and they can't talk to the family members because the family doesn't want it doesn't want to look at it doesn't want to deal with it you know or sometimes you know they either get or they get too worried or maybe they'll blame the partner so they really you know they feel like well you know that's this person's family why aren't they helping and it's like okay you know, not everyone can help and so in that kind of situation then we look at who who in my client circle would be able to to give them the support that they need and sometimes you know, it could be right in front of you. and You don't realize it. Yeah. That's, that's what I, I find so often that until you actually have somebody like poking going, well, how about this person? How about in this circle of friends? How about in that circle of friends? Then it's like, oh wait, yeah, I do have somebody I can reach out to. And then right away, we start feeling better. Once we know that, you know, there are people on our side that have our backs that, you know, that we can, we can really lean on, um, to, to help us during these challenging times
0: so sometimes you have to go out in the world and create your own support systems that aren't necessarily the people that you think they will be um is that usually when you will come in and how are some other ways that you see people creating support systems for themselves
1: um, I'm definitely one of those people. Um, but I do encourage my clients to find people, you know, within their family. I mean, you know, I, for me, it, it's, you know, a paid service. So, you know, there, there are people in our lives that we're close to or, you know, that, that could be those, those people. So I'm usually encouraging people. To um, to start looking within within their networks or expanding their networks. Sometimes it's about joining support groups and just looking at okay, what what might you be interested in? What you might you be open to trying out? You know, to find because you know I really want to create. Um, a sense of empowerment for my clients. Like I want them to be empowered in their own lives and not have a dependence on me. I mean, 100%, I'm here to support you however I can, but it's not a healthy relationship if you have to keep calling your coach um, every time something goes wrong. You wanna have the people around you that just it's part of your day that they're checking in on you, that you can just you know shoot them a text message and say, I'm not having a great day. You know, can we talk? Can we go for dinner? Can we go to a movie? Well, not these days, but you
0: know You're right.
1: <laughs> generally speaking, but just even saying like, can I talk to you? Like, you know, I, I know it's nine o'clock at night, but I just need to talk to somebody. And and so finding those people or creating those kinds of relationships and you know, now more than ever, it's easy it's easier to find. Um people that can support you. There's, there's so many support groups. There's so much access to it. Now that we've got, you know, the internet, we, we can find anything we can possibly need. You know, do you want in person? Do you want it on Zoom? Do you want it on phone? You know, how often do you want to meet? You know, free or paid or, you know, we have, there's so many options now.
0: And so what does your process look like if someone wanted to be your client?
1: Um, so my process if they want to be my client is reach out to me through my website and that's michelleannengcoaching.com and just send me a message you know just kind of saying what you know what you're looking for coaching about and then we would set up a call Um, I offer a free consultation and we have a call just to make sure that this is something that I can help this person with and, and that we're a good fit because we want to be able to, you know, I, I want that person to feel safe with me and to trust me. And, and I want to make sure too, that the client is in the right place to be able to get the support from me. Cause you know, there, there's a difference between coaching and therapy. And sometimes people are not as clear on that. So they might need therapy and in which case that initial consultation would kind of clarify it. Um, and I, am happy to explain the difference. Um, essentially therapy looks at, um, where are you today and how did you get here? So it's, you know, all the childhood stuff, what our parents did to us, what other kids did to us, you know, all those things that kind of created the self-limiting beliefs, our stories that got us to where we are today. Coaching looks at where are you today? And where do you want to be? And it's moving you forward. Um, You know, we do definitely touch on some things from the past. You know, it's often helpful to say like, oh, you have this limiting belief about whatever it might be. Where do you think that started? But we don't do a deep dive into it. We're just touching on it so we can recognize like, oh, okay, that's something that happened when you were six years old and adult you is still kind of living from that six-year-old's decision about how life works. So we'll, you know, we'll look at it that way and then mo- keep moving forward. But the, the idea is to keep moving that client towards whatever goal they're trying to reach. And also coaching has accountability. Um, there's, you know, what we call homework. So in between sessions, there's work that the client is going to be doing on their own to continue moving them forward so it's very very much um forward moving and with a focus on how we're showing up as we're doing that we, you know and and you know the way that i was trained it's there's the being and the doing So um, just working in that space. But sometimes clients are still needing to heal a lot from their past. And, you know, I can usually identify that in that first call and then I'll let them know. Um, Or, you know, they might want to move forward too. So I might say, okay, get somebody, you know, like a therapist that you can work through the past stuff and you and I can move through moving forward. And I have a number of clients that are, are working with a therapist and myself at the same time
0: okay so would you ever um, you know kind of collaborate would you ever collaborate with the therapist directly or is it just that you know that they are receiving therapy um, from a different source
1: Um, thank you. That's a great question. So no, I don't collaborate with the therapist. um, and I haven't had it come up. I, I guess I would be open to it depending on the situation, but essentially as long as I know the client is, is working with somebody through that stuff, you know, if, if old stuff comes up, um, in our sessions, that's when we might agree like, Oh, you know what, that's something you, you can work through with your therapist, who's trained to help you with that healing component. And, let's continue move, you know, doing the coaching piece. So I'm very specific about, you know, that, that I am coaching, but, um, you know, usually, usually they just go hand in hand and they are independent. I don't want, you know, again, it's about empowering my client. So I think, you know, if I'm collaborating with the therapist and then we're coming to the client with what we think, it's a little bit disempowering in my opinion
0: yeah i could de- definitely see that where it's almost like a form of collusion at a right point.
1: <laughs> yeah like we're going to tell you what what you need so right. and that's the thing like coaching is all like you in you know in coaching you are the expert in your own life you know what you need sometimes though you don't realize that you might not have access to it but you know, I'm very much, you know, guiding the client with questions of like, well, what do you need right now? What do you think can help you get there? And seeing if you can come up with the answers on your own. I'm not telling you, you should do A, B, and C. So it's, it's really letting the client realize that they are making these decisions on their own, which is so important.
0: So let's, is, do you, have you found with your clients or just in your experience doing research on these subjects that there's a correlation between mental health and addiction
1: um i believe there is um i haven't studied it um because i'm not treating people in that space so i i don't know but i'm i'm pretty certain there is something because usually addiction is um you know a way of avoiding a way of of checking out or you know kind of detaching so often it's when when our feelings get to be too much or we just don't want to touch them for whatever reason that's kind of when we're looking at, at another way to to maybe numb the pain um or or not have to not have to deal with things but again i'm not an expert on on that um, that's why when it comes to addiction i'm working just with the family members okay and I, and I might direct them to resources where they can get that information, but I wouldn't be educating them on that piece.
0: You're just putting them in a position where they can process what's going on with their family member who is dealing with the addiction.
1: Yeah, and help and, and them set themselves up for the best, you know, best way possible for them to take care of themselves.
0: And then also becoming a support system which Which is hard to balance both.
1: Um, for as for as the coach to balance the both
0: No, more well, well for them to balance.
1: Oh yeah, both. yeah, just yeah, definitely creating creating the balance for them.
0: So, kind of take us into your story. You've given us a lot of great insight into coaching and the dynamics that and the benefits that it offers. But what inspired you to get into coaching?
1: Mm, great question. Um, so I um, lost my husband. Um, he died by suicide 14 years ago. He had suffered from severe mental illness. He um, he had bipolar disorder and he had a form of schizophrenia. And unfortunately, by the time um, he received his diagnosis, it was he was pretty advanced um, in his illness and um, they tried different medications and treatments and and nothing was working. Some were having, you know, the opposite um, effect that they were supposed to have on him or they just didn't work at all. There were tons of side effects and and he eventually lost hope and and sadly died by suicide and um, so to, to make matters worse, um, because of the, the shame and the stigma around mental illness um, that came from my family and his family, both, both sides kind of were in this community where that's just not talked about. So um, a decision was made that, um, that we were going to tell people he died in an accident so for almost 11 years more than 10 years i i lied to the world including my kids they were seven and four when he died and um we told everybody that my husband died in an accident um you know i justified it in in so many ways i mean one being that well you know i don't know how to tell my kids that this happened because i don't understand it myself Uh, my husband never like, you know, his, you know, he was very, very sick. Um, and he, um, he was, you know, clearly he had moved into psychosis by the end of his life, but he never, ever once talked about suicide, never once talked about dying. So, you know, I was coming from this place of worrying that he was going to accidentally hurt himself or somebody else, but I never thought that it would be an intentional act or, or choice, um, so, you know, I, I couldn't wrap my head around it. I also, um, didn't know how to explain it to people because when he was sick, he didn't want anybody to know either. So we just kind of went on our life for, uh, you know, the, the, couple of years while he was sick, um, pretending everything was fine and he even had to stop working. Um, pretty much shortly after after he got the diagnosis i think that kind of i think he gave himself the permission of like okay there's something really not great going on here i I need to stop working because he really he couldn't function he was pushing himself so hard and so he wasn't working but we were pretending that he was so now how do you go from like people just you know not even knowing anything to all of a sudden oh he died by suicide Uh, so yeah, so many, many layers, um, within the entire family and, um, it had a huge impact on me. Um, you know, for one thing, not being able to grieve the suicide was, was huge. You know, there, there are a lot of added emotions, um, or different emotions that, that People experience, they call us suicide loss survivors. So we experience very different emotions than somebody that might have died in an accident. You know, there's always the, the, the wondering of like, what could I have done? You know, did I do everything right? Could I love them harder? Because somehow I think we, we go into a space of thinking, if we just love them more, we'll make them better, we'll make them happier. Um, you know, what did I miss? So so many questions that go in minds and then you know i also have the anger you know here here i was now suddenly having to tell my kids that their dad is gone you know our i you know our our financial situation had become a mess and i only found out a lot of things after he passed away of, of really what what the picture looked like and then it was like oh my god you left me to clean all of this up you know like that's so not fair yeah so there there was all of this you know right this anger that i was feeling also of like you know, you know yeah like i you know my my best friend reminded me recently like and I, i'm glad she did but like she said like i said to her at one point like he gets to rest in peace while i'm here picking up the pieces of our lives you know yeah. and that was really how i felt like completely resentful of just like wow lucky him i mean now obviously i you know i don't feel that way because I've, I've had to work through all of it but in in the beginning there was a lot of that like you know dealing with my kids grief and you know my four-year-old didn't even understand what it meant to be dead you know his question to me when when I told him he was like oh is daddy a mummy like we see on scooby-doo like he thought his dad's like you know rolled up in toilet paper and walking around the street somewhere (laughs) like he didn't even understand what it means meant to die and it's like okay like I, I'm having these conversations with our kids. This is not fair. This is not right. It's not supposed to be that way. And so, yeah, I was, I had a lot of, a lot of this stuff that I now needed to just stuff because there were very, very few people that knew and even like, you know, his immediate family that knew, like I couldn't go and talk to them about that. They were grieving their own loss. And so I felt very isolated. Um, I felt alone. I had my own mental health challenges from it Um, you know I I had depression as well you know stuffing all of those emotions and not not dealing with any of it you know it takes its toll and I had anxiety always worrying like what if somebody finds out what if it gets out what if my kids find out from someone else and they get upset with me so um, it was it was a pretty uh, dark decade for me and um it was only you know when i hit one of my numerous rock bottoms that it was around my 45th birthday that i was just like i can't live this way anymore like because i was i was designing my whole life around this huge secret and right. and i can't even say designing because i wasn't even that intentional i was literally just kind of like bobbing along and like if I bumped into something then okay great hey you're here (laughs) like you know so I was I was very lost and so it was only when I started to do my deep work that I was finally able to you know understand that a lot of the shame I was feeling wasn't even mine Um, and what I did feel was you know I could understand why I did what I did. I could have self-compassion. And then I did eventually tell my kids. And, and from that point, I realized, you know, these are the people that I want to work with. These people who feel so alone, um, who are really struggling. I, I know what it's like. And, you know, I, I went to very, very dark places. So I, I can go there again with people essentially. Cause, cause I know, I know what it's like to be in that space. And so I want, you know, for me, it's so meaningful to be able to lift people up and help them find the light.
0: So how have you been able to go back into these dark places without bringing your work home with you, so to speak?
1: Um, I've done a lot of healing work, so, and you know, so I... I see it as a gift. So, you know, the healing work that I've done is, you know, I've, I've now detached somewhat from, um, from, you know, the, the, the deep, intense emotions that were surrounding it. So while I might feel it with a client, it's not to the same extent as they are still being in it. You know, I'm on the other side now. and, you know, my clients are coming to me because they know I get it because they know that they're not just talking to a, you know, a therapist or a coach who understands mental illness from a theoretical place. I'm somebody who lived it. And so they know that, that I have felt it, that I've gone through it. And I find that, you know, with with these kinds of challenges, you know, we're, we're wanting to know, first of all, that we're not crazy for feeling the way that we do or thinking the way that we do. And we want somebody else there to support us. And and I know I can offer that. So I'm viewing it as a gift. Like I, you know, it, it, the weight of it, of the story doesn't, doesn't weigh me down because i can see the light in the client and the hope for the client and that's really what i'm focusing on is is you know the light in them and having that shine brighter
0: and so what was the like real transition point where you were able to turn your pain into your purpose and really start building a business model from it
1: well yeah it was over over a few years um you know the the turning point for me was having had enough of all the pain like i really i i reached a point where i was just like okay i i'm in too much pain i can't do this one more day i don't care what it takes for me to feel differently and to heal from this and and, you know and i because i knew it wasn't going to be an easy easy road and um so I really, um, I wanted, I was determined to do whatever it took. And so I did, you know, a deep dive into therapy and, um, you know, and, and I don't recommend my method for everyone, but again, I was extremely determined. <laughs> and um, So I, I did, you know, the traditional form of like talk therapy. And then I also did EMDR, which is... Um, a form of trauma therapy. Um, I also did something called Rolfing, which is, um, so they say that trauma gets stored in your fascia. Um, so it, it's essentially, it's, it's releasing the trauma from within your body. So I was doing all three of those at the same time. So literally like three times a week, I'm going from one to the next to the next, you know, new stuff, new memories, new trauma would come up and I would just talk it out with each one of them or, or do whatever the work was. Um, but essentially, you know, it was through that and then working with my own coach that, you know, I finally came to that place of like, oh, this is who, who, you know, who I need to be serving. And, and, and it's funny too, cause you know, with my business coach, we were, we were in, um, it was a group course that we were taking on, you know, starting our coaching businesses and, and this, you know, one of the exercises our coach had us do was to, um, essentially just kind of write out, you know, create an avatar of who your cl- ideal client is. And I had done this whole worksheet and it was all about empowering people, particularly women, um, you know, to, to own their truth and to stand up for themselves. And um, I had one piece in there about, you know, being a mental health advocate. And so here I am, and you know, we're all on Zoom, and I'm reading out, you know my worksheet, and my coach is like, "Whoa whoa, hang on a second. You're talking all about empowerment, but then there's this one mental health piece that doesn't even fit in with the rest. Like, what's that about?" And, I, and this had happened like a couple of weeks after I told my kids., <laughs> so I was like, "Well, okay. so here's my story." and And she was like, um, hang on." <laughs> you know, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, like this aha moment. And that's what I say. Like, you know, sometimes the answers are right in front of us, but we need somebody else to say like, hang on a second. Cause you just, we get used to our own stories. And so I wasn't even able to see what it was. And then as soon as she called me out on that, I was like, oh, I know exactly what I needed to do. And then from there, it just, you know, it kind of fell into place. It was just like, I know exactly what what i want to offer my clients i know what i needed at the time and and it just kept evolving and growing from that place
0: so how was it what was your approach with your first client your very first client
1: you know every client is different i don't have a formula that i work with Um, my first client um i'm still working with today and yeah and and it has shifted and evolved like our our coaching relationship and this this individual's life has has changed so much in the last few years that we we've been working together you know it's you know it starts out the client usually comes with one topic but Often that topic is kind of representative of what's going on. Like there's usually a common theme in their whole life. And so, you know, we, we did work together on, you know, on some of the issues. And then it just like it kept expanding because as they became more courageous, as they became more authentic, as they started owning their truth and taking care of themselves, they started doing bigger things in the world. And then it was like, okay, now you're at this level where are you going to go from here? And so, you know, and and we're always growing, you know, I mean, that's the hope is that we continuously grow. I think that's, um, you know, what we're doing here. <laughs> and so, you know, as this, as my client is growing, I'm, I'm growing along with them and it's so, it's so exciting. It's so exciting to see, you know, every conversation, like recently we, you know, we had a, we had a call this past week and I was like, I'm thinking about you in the very beginning. And like, you never would have done what you're doing today. <laughs> and they were like, oh my gosh, you're right. So it's, it's exciting. It's fun. It's, you know, you develop a real connection. And, and I have to say, I love, I love my clients. I love the work that I do. And I love seeing them really flourish.
0: I love that. And, then, and how do you start making adjustments with your clients? Because you treat every client based on where they are and what their needs are. So how are you initially processing or um, studying them?
1: Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm trained in different techniques on, you know, active listening and, and, you know, coaching is all about being curious. And so it's starting from that place of curiosity and just asking a lot of questions to get to know them, to get to know what they want, to get to know what they're afraid of. Um, so and then we go from there and every client has, you know, like there's no timeline either. Um, you know every client has their own individual timeline that works for them and where they're at Um, so I really honor what you know that this is their life and their agenda and I'm not I'm not bringing my own to the table I you know if if they're looking for something specific and they ask me then I'm happy to offer what it is that they need Um, but at the same time I really am honoring um, What whatever their process is. I mean, I I have one client that you know, in the beginning when we started working together, like they had so much emotion because they hadn't talked to anybody about what was going on, and they really just needed to vent. For the first you know few conversations we had, like you know, we would sit on a Zoom call uh, because I do work with people all over the world, so um, most of the work I'm doing is is remote. It's either on the phone or on Zoom. Um, and they, they would just, you know, we'd start the call and they would see my face and they would just start crying and I would just sit and, you know, maybe some conversation would happen and sometimes it wouldn't, you know, just because that's what they needed in that moment. And so, you know, that's why I say I don't have a specific, um, agenda. Like, yes, I do kind of follow a format of how to, you know, you know, what, what we need but but it's the client saying that they're ready for that you know and i'm always checking in of like okay this is where i'm thinking we can go what are your thoughts on that and they'll tell me if they're ready for that and sometimes they're going to say you know that sounds great but i actually want to go in a different direction with you know what i want to focus on right now so and that's the thing that often they might come to me about a family member Um, who has mental health challenges, or they themselves have it. And then suddenly they're realizing, wow, I have somebody who can work with me on growing in any area I want. So, you know, I let them decide.
0: Okay. I kind of want to switch gears here for a moment. Mm -hmm. So with your, your own mental health issues... Did you have mental health issues before um, you were dealing with your husband's schizophrenia or did they kind of result or manifest themselves more prominently during that period?
1: It's a great question and I never had a formal diagnosis before, um, before my husband passed away but I, I know I was I was definitely undiagnosed and experiencing both of those. I think they were just magnified a lot more um, after after the illness. Um, you know, there, there were periods of time where I was just really on autopilot and not feeling. And, and I know, like, at one point I'd gone for a, a physical um, to see my doctor. And actually, this is around the time I was diagnosed. So the doctor said, okay, let's do blood work because often... Um, often we can have symptoms that look like depression, but it could be a vitamin deficiency or something else going on in our bodies. And so I was very appreciative that my doctor was very thorough in looking to rule that out before putting me on antidepressants. Um, So when the blood work came back, she said to me, do you know you have antibodies for mono and two different kinds? And I was like, what are you telling me that I've had mono? And she's like, yeah, twice. (laughs) I had no idea. So I have a feeling it was, you know, I have had some trauma in my life, you know, before my husband passed away, but feeling I was just completely shut down and didn't realize. And just like, okay, just, just completely autopilot, like a robot, just do what you need to do. And And that's kind of how i live and i went through the mono that way and i think that's how i went through my depressive episodes as well um but with my husband it was it was a lot clearer to me because you know i did have days in bed i did you know i was sleeping a lot where and it came to a point where i couldn't function um i couldn't work you know i I, because i was i was needing to sleep half the day and then i'd be sleeping all night and i just had no energy and um So that's when it came about. And then after that, it was like, oh yeah, thinking back on my life, I can definitely see times where I did feel that way, but I just didn't allow it.
0: So if you'll indulge us, can we go back a little further and how did you two meet? And like, what was that relationship like in the early stages?
1: So funny enough, uh, we actually met when we were eight years old.
0: Wow and yeah. Yeah. Really bad.
1: Really Really bad. I know. I was like, You wanna go that far? Let's go. Yeah, Yeah, and he you know, he was the obnoxious kid that was teasing me and of course I developed the crush on him. And um yeah, we went to summer camp together when we were about twelve or thirteen. Um and then we, you know, we we had mutual friends in high school and just kind of connected and then, you know, disconnected and and then finally um got started you know started dating at 18 his his best friend started dating a good friend of mine and so the four of us were hanging out together a lot and and that's that's where it developed so yeah we were we were together from 18 and then got married at 22 so babies
0: so really around you two have been around each other your whole lives and I'm assuming your families knew each other as well to some extent
1: yeah 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 they weren't close but they knew of each other
0: and then so with his family was there a history of mental illness or like looking back were you able to see signs like maybe when you from the time you were 18 to 22 or nothing at all
1: Well so he was actually adopted and we didn't have the adoption records so we didn't know um, what his health history was. Um, After he passed away uh, and when my my older son turned 18 we were able to get the adoption records and then um, that's where we saw there there was some sign but you know it wasn't entirely clear. I think if this hadn't happened to him I don't know that we would have necessarily noticed it to be a big thing like it you know wasn't it wasn't in the adoption records that this was the parental history um and um what was the other question sorry
0: <laughs> so like were just yeah were there any you know kind of oh. preliminary signs in terms right. of you know from 18 to 22 because that's usually when it starts manifesting if i'm correct
1: Um, you know, it. I didn't see any signs. Um, he had shared, but again, only after the diagnosis. So he was about 32 when he got the diagnosis, because he was 35 when he passed. Um, then he started sharing things with me. So he told me, like, he remembered when he was six years old, walking around the playground, thinking life was hard. And I was like, wow, that, you know kids don't usually think that way. So, I think the signs were there, but you know, again, like we we grew up in the 70s and people were not talking about mental illness. It was uh, illness at the time. It wasn't on anybody's radar. And um, if there were any signs, I mean, for one thing, none of us were educated to know what to look out for, and I can't recall anything specific that I could pinpoint. I think, you know, like the occasional weird thing you know, you could, that I might say like, Oh, maybe that was it, but it wasn't, it was not clear cut. Um, his, his episodes, like the, the bipolar, like going from, from depression to manic episodes were so few and far between and really, um, they, they weren't big, big episodes that it would have been noticeable. So I think like, yeah, if you look back, you Kind of paint a picture, but even still, like I'm not a hundred percent certain about certain things.
0: Hindsight is so twenty-twenty. Right.
1: right. Yeah. And, and yeah. And then it's
0: that's deceptive, you know. Right. To a, certain, a certain extent. Yeah.
1: Right. And it's still speculation. So it's like, okay, well, I can make it fit the story I wanted to fit, but is that really what was going on? So, so I'm not sure.
0: So you all had been married for. Twelve a, years, a decade, yeah, yeah, before the diagnosis came.
1: Yeah, well, I guess twelve years when he passed. So yeah, about a decade when when the diagnosis okay. came. So, so about yeah, when the diagnosis. yeah. But yeah. we had been together for for four years before we were married. So yeah.
0: So during that period, like after the diagnosis, what was the like? timeline for the the fall was it like noticeable was it gradual what
1: yeah it was pretty noticeable i think when he you know he was he was already starting to to show signs when when we got him um you know got him diagnosed like went to the doctor because he was um you know he was having you know a number of depressive episodes so it was getting bad i didn't see the manic episodes until after and i think uh well i i know he didn't want to burden anybody i know he had this you know he was a very principled man and you know he he was like i've got a family to support i have to do this like the way i'm feeling can't get in the way and so i know he hit a lot of it and i know that he pushed himself very hard like as hard as he could until he couldn't anymore to maintain you know the illusion that he was okay that he could provide for us that he could be with us but it it completely drained him so um you know i think once he got the diagnosis and it was out there then i think he gave himself permission to say like okay no now I, I just have to be how i really feel and that's when when he stopped working because he was yeah he was having a really rough time and then of course that's when he started the medication and you know the trials and you know those you know that was um, a bit of an ordeal and i i think you know many people have this experience because um the medical professionals can't look at our brains and say oh these are the you know this is what you need this is where you have a chemical imbalance it's all trial and error so they're trying different medications and it's usually more than one so sometimes the medications don't don't go well together for individuals and like i know for you know for example when he was put on prozac which was you know the first antidepressant he went on which most people react just fine like if anything they're kind of numbed out and it made him angry like here he was, like he was the kindest, sweetest, gentlest soul ever, and then suddenly, like, you know, he's he's just getting upset all the time. Like everything would set him off, and it was like, who are you? What's going on? And then it was like, quickly run back to the doctor and say, get me off this medication because this is what's going on. So, so it was um, it was a really challenging time then.
0: So, at what point? were you able to start making distinctions between like the regular common fights at all um people in relationships have that are common to couples right mm-hmm. versus this is an episode
1: um so i mean the the angry part was was very short um and so and you know i didn't know at first that it was the medication It was just like oh my gosh what's happening to this man and i didn't know enough about the mental illness either to know this should not be happening um i don't think that that there was a way to make the distinction i think um you know because the thing too was that um he was already progressing very quickly his his episodes like you know they go in cycles and he was cycling quicker and quicker and quicker and so you know by the end i didn't even know who he was i didn't recognize him anymore you know he you know because he obviously was letting his guard down with me and, and not putting on the brave face but um he was he was not he was not the man i had known all those years and um and he was also then like towards the end um he wasn't rational he was you know I mean then he started talking about the voices in his head um, and you know and his behavior was really odd and and so then it was clear like okay this is the illness
0: so as a parent did you ever feel the need to um, separate yourself and your kids from the situation or did you feel like you still had a good grasp on the situation and you were able to protect them or shield them from it as much as possible
1: well you know we, we covered up a lot um, you know when he was depressed and in bed for days it was daddy works hard and he's really tired so he needs to sleep and then when he was manic and not home it was well daddy's working really hard so we you know that that was um, okay. you know they were so little that they bought it um, but by the end of his life, um, you know, just a couple of weeks before he passed, we were having conversations that, you know, cause he was worried that he wasn't safe around the kids and, um, and I was concerned too. And so we were talking about, you know, what do we do next? He stayed with his cousin for a bit, but, um, You know, we we were still talking every day. But again, you know, I I was talking to somebody who was in psychosis. So he couldn't make clear decisions. And we were kind of all over the place and back and forth all the
0: time. So when he was out on the manic episodes, Mm -hmm. were you concerned about infidelity? Were you concerned about drug use or like his own safety? What was kind of going through your mind at that time?
1: (sighs) I didn't even know what to think. I didn't... I know I didn't want to go into any of those places um, in my mind so I think that's like those are one of those times where I just kind of checked out and again being in survival mode like and and the thing too is like here I am I'm raising two little kids I was working two jobs at this point because he couldn't work so I had a, a job in an office and then at night I was I was doing work from home and um like transcription work for for lawyers. So when after my kids went to bed, you know, and they went to bed early, and it was like, oh, okay, well they're in bed at eight. I've got three hours where I can get work done, then get up and do that all over again. So I think being busy kept me from going into all those dark spaces. Um, you know, the worry was there, but I didn't. It didn't. I didn't let it take over because. I knew I needed to get through every day and I knew I needed to be there for my family. So it was, and that wasn't going to help me at all.
0: Yeah. So it's just like you said, just being in survivor mode. Yeah. You can only take it day by day.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's amazing how much you can check out and dissociate from when you're in that space. It's like, I'm just, I'm not going there. You know, that was, that was it.
0: So you kind of touched on this earlier, but after all the years of carrying the secret and the cover up, what really prompted you to just let where it was like, it's time to share this with the world and embrace really what I've been going through, what I went through, what my true story is
1: yeah so it was it was after i told my kids i mean my my kids were the ones that i i felt needed to know you know it was it was you know i'd reached a point in 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 my healing where it was like okay this is this is the the obvious next step was tell my kids the truth i mean for the years before i always thought i'll wait till they're older till they're till they have their own kids and they'll understand why i made those choices and You know, it didn't work out that way in all my healing work. I was just like, okay, I'm going, you know, and and of course, with with encouragement from my support people who are also like, okay, I think that's the next step. And as scary as it was, um, I also I knew I knew that was really what was going to set me free was was telling my kids the truth. And thankfully, they took it very well. Um, You know, they said they had wished they had known sooner, but they understood like they, they they understood the way that our families were and that you know certain things are swept under the rug and not talked about and this was one of them um and then after that point when i you know once i felt that freedom and that relief of like wow the secret's out it was like okay you know and and i knew that that was the work i wanted to do it was like how do i now tell everybody that i know that thinks he died in an accident and so you know good old facebook And I literally, I created a post saying, you know, and it was World Mental Health Day um, when I posted it, uh, you know, I make it sound like I, I wrote it that day. I didn't. I wrote it. I, I started creating it three weeks before, and it took me three weeks and probably 12, I think it was 12 rewrites of how am I going to say this, Um to, to put you it out there you were inspired
0: that day we know the truth <laughs> I wish
1: one, I wish one fell no way. swoop
0: just wrote it all out
1: oh I wish no, it was a process. And my kids were actually amazing too. They were they were involved in it. I mean, they were 18 and 15 at the time. And my, my older one had started university and he was doing communications. He's an excellent writer. I was like, okay, I got my, put this out. Can you just read through it, make sure it sounds good? And he did some editing for me. And then he's like, okay, mom, it's great. Put it out. And I'm like, no, I need a week now to like sit on it and just kind of brace myself. Because I you know like, you know, Facebook wasn't around when my husband passed away. It came out a few months later. And, you know, over these you know 10 11 years i had accumulated a number of you know hundreds of friends that he had grown up with that i had grown up with because we you know mutual friends and then all the way through to like people who didn't know him but knew me and then it's like yeah hey guess what here i am but it also for me it felt like well that's the the only way everybody can hear it from me in the same way and you know and just, and then it's out because I'm not going to phone every single person I ever knew and, and, and do that. So, so I put it out there and it was terrifying. I was so scared, um, that I was going to be judged and people would, you know, shame me for it. And, and I was shocked because I, you know, the whole day, like I put it out on mental health day. I was like, you know, today's world mental health day. And this is my story. And then I, I bared it all. And I spent the rest of the day crying because I was flooded with emails and comments and calls and responses, and you name it, of different ways of people reaching out saying, oh my God, I can't believe you went through that alone. I love you. I'm here for you. And then there were all the people saying, me too. This is what I'm hiding. And, wow. you know, I, yeah. And that, that really strengthened my belief of like, okay, this is, I'm supposed to be doing this. Oh, yeah. Cause like every time I speak, you know, if I'm on a stage or I'm doing a podcast or, or any of my videos, there's always at least one person who will write to me or give me, you know, mess, reach out to me somehow and say, thank you for saying what you said, because this is what I'm hiding you know and some people it's it's similar you know it's also a suicide other people are are hiding different things but it just seems like you know we have this culture where none of us feel totally safe just being who we are and so my hope is that by by me showing up and saying like yes i've you know not only gotten over the shame but i've actually learned to love myself and and totally own you know, all the things that I've done and even the things that, like, I wish I had done differently, I feel like that gives people permission to to do it too. And I hope it inspires them to do, you know, to to live that life and, and be true because there's so much freedom on the other side of that shame.
0: So it was truly an empowering experience. Yeah. And so from there... How do you, like, as, as a, a family, um, do your kids worry about their own mental health?
1: Well, my younger son actually was diagnosed with depression. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I was, oh, that was one thing that um, I did always make sure, you know, even though I wasn't telling anybody publicly what happened to my husband. Their doctors knew. Um, I had them in therapy to deal with the suicide. Any support groups they were part of, they always knew the truth. Um, And so it was always on my radar that, you know, considering my mental health challenges and my husband's, like, they you know, the chances of them having something is pretty high. Um, so my, my younger son was, um, was diagnosed with depression and he has given me permission to talk about it. Um, and, um, he's, he's doing great. You know, he, he was on medication for a bit and then on his own he made the choice to stop the medication didn't tell me (laughs) until later but he decided he he wanted to manage his own health and and changed his lifestyle and got healthy and yeah And it was funny because he he had started a new medication or he was given a prescription for something new and um and it takes a month for for this kind of medication to take effect. And so it was about a month later and I was like, wow, you seem to be doing great. Those new meds must really be working for you. And he's like, oh, didn't I tell you I never took the pills? <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, he goes, I just didn't like it was clear that like, you know, when wasn't working. They're going to give me this. If this doesn't work, they're going to give me something else. And he was like, I, I don't want to be a lab rat. Like, he said, I just decided I'm going to see what I can do on my own. I was like, wow, look at you. <laughs> so, pretty impressive.
0: That's a great story. I'm happy that he had an empowering experience, just finding yeah. his own way.
1: Yes, and hopefully hopefully it continues. But, you know, we also have um, developed very open communication between us and language around talking about you know check-ins with with our mental health both of our mental healths and yeah my older one thankfully has been spared um so you know that helps too where where you know we will do check-ins if one of us you know seems to not be doing great and we know we know the signs for each other we've we've shared them with each other of like you know just you know, my kids both, you know, they both know that if I'm napping during the day, like taking long naps, something's up. And so they'll check in with me on that. Like that, that for me, um, I don't necessarily go into like the dark thoughts. For me, I, my emotions just shut off and I get like, I, I experience it much more physically. I, I just get really, really tired. And so my kids know like, okay, if I'm lacking energy and I'm not, you know my usual self. They'll check in and say, like, hey what's going on?" So it, it's great that we have that lens around it.
0: And worry. How would you advise someone to be in a um, romantic or just even a uh, support relationship with someone who is battling either mental health or addiction?
1: Yeah. Um, so generally speaking, um, you know, and I say generally because each, each situation, you know, like, just like mental illness, like, no, like we, we can have the same diagnosis and it could look different for different people. And, um, I think the way to go about things and being in relationship could be different too. But overall, I, you know, what I say to my clients is, you know, you're in this relationship to love the person and not fix them because often we go into suggestions like, cause we can't be with whatever it is, or we want to see them happy or shift. And so we'll start like, Oh, why don't you go for a walk? Why don't you eat healthy? You know, you should take better care of yourself. And we go into that space and, and our fan and our, you know, our relationship, uh, let's say, for example, a partner doesn't necessarily appreciate that. Like, so I say like, if they are getting treatment, from their doctor if they're seeing a doctor seeing a therapist let the professionals do their job your job is to love the person as they are and um and i really encourage um open communication and i i will i you know work with clients too about how to have certain conversations you know we um often you know say say with depression um you know, or it could be with anxiety too, where the person just might be sharing what's going on. And so our automatic thing is, our automatic reaction is they want me to fix them or I need to do something to help them. And we go into fixing mode and sometimes that's not what they want. So what I recommend is if you're in a relationship with somebody and, you know, they're sharing this with you, to ask them, what do, you, what do you need from me now? Do you want me to just listen and hear you out and give you a space to vent? Or are, do you want me to help you find a solution? And they'll always, 100% of the time, they will know exactly what they need and they'll give you that answer in a split second. They're not going to say, I don't know. They, they know. They know what they want from us and listen to them and honour that. And if you are concerned that they are not getting the medical care that they need, then absolutely you know have that conversation or or call call for help like you know i think you use your discretion trust your intuition in those in those situations um because you know you do love this person and and you do want to see them well so you know if if there is a sign perhaps that somebody might be suicidal then then call for help
0: thank you so much for sharing that insight I, i think that was wonderful advice and be- just very practical things that all of us can do no matter how much we know or don't know about mental health or addiction for that yeah. matter
1: and it could be anybody you know even a friend just you know saying that you care and you know hey i you know you're not your yourself you know, i don't know what's going on but i just want you to know i'm here if you ever want to talk about it you know because i think that is the biggest um, the kindest thing that we can we can do for somebody else is just letting them know that we're there and that we care and that we see them like that we notice that, that something's up
0: and so we're getting into final questions here
1: mm-hmm.
0: like so in the future are well are you currently dating do you see yourself getting married again where are you
1: um, I've had a few relationships I took um, I took a few years off when I was doing my my deep healing work mm-hmm. um, I've just gotten back into dating again um, and then of course work gets super busy <laughs> you know, sure. and with the pandemic too it's, it's weird it's like a lot of walks
0: dating is it's not the best time to date now no it's not it's yeah not.
1: so so you know I I'm like okay well if if it happens then great um, and if it doesn't, then it's just not the right time. Um, I don't know that I see myself getting married again. I, you know, it would be lovely to have a partner, but um, I've done marriage and um, yeah, I don't know if at this stage of my life, if it's that important to me, but you know, it would be wonderful to have, have a partner to, you know, go through the next stage of my life with, you know, traveling and, you know, relaxing and, you know, <laughs> So, so yeah, I stay open.
0: And I ask all that because sometimes when you have uh, with mental health issues, there is always that sense of stigma. And mm-hmm. people kind of, that's the part of us that maybe we hide until the fifth date, the tenth date, you know, after... The first three months have been great. And then you tell start revealing like, Hey, I actually you know, this is parts of my story, right? Right. And then then you're waiting for the reaction and but you seem to be at a point in your life where you're just going to be upfront. Where they're probably going to find out that information on maybe even the third date or something like that
1: well i think they're going to find out before they meet me because nowadays who doesn't google their potential dates and (laughs) i have done so many talks about this story (laughs) that they're going to know before they even go out with me so so that really you know for me that clears it it's like okay if you haven't googled me then like why not do i really want to date you because of course i've googled you (laughs) You And if there's any judgment, they're probably going to cancel the date. And that hasn't happened yet. So, um, you know, I feel that the more open and, um, you know, accepting I am of who I am, it doesn't leave room for anybody who's not accepting. Like, they're they're just not going to come into my radar. Because this is who I am. And you've got to be prepared that, yeah, I, I talk about me and I talk about, you know, the stuff that people don't want to talk about. So... <laughs> So be okay with that or be somebody like that. You know, I, I highly value that as well. So that's my way around it. I say don't even wait till you know, just own who you are. Like
0: own who you are. Yeah. Own who you are and use Google, right?
1: Right, right. <laughs> the two takeaways.
0: <laughs> well, you're, you're definitely a catch, so I can totally understand why, you know, you have the appeal in the market, so... I, I see good things happening for you As soon as COVID clears up Maybe you can find A good stable relationships oh, Thank no. you Yes So I have two more questions for you then. Sure How have you seen The um, The change in mental health um, In the past Let's even say The past three to five years
1: well, I think there's there's so much more willingness to talk about things. I mean, the system, I, unfortunately, I don't see it being a whole heck of a lot better than it was even, even 14 or 16 years ago when my husband was still alive um, and, and going through that. Um, but I think the stigma, you know, I think people are more willing to talk about it. And I, I have to say, like, for all the complaints that people have about social media and what's out there. And yes, that, you know, there's stuff to complain about. One of the good things that's come of that is that it's a platform where people can really talk about what they're going through. And so there is so much more awareness, there's more education, there's more resources and there's this willingness to share. And there's a forum, like there's so many groups on Facebook, whatever, you know, whatever is ailing you, you can go online and find a group, you know, if it's it's on Facebook or anywhere else, you can just Google, you know, support group for depression, you're gonna find a million. So I think that's been great. Um, you know, and that's like the last three to five years, but the last six months, I think there's been, you know, since the quarantine and, and the lockdown and all of that, you know, up until today and everything that's going on in the world, um, I think mental health is really, you know, I think that we need to change the system. We need to make things work better because people that were, you know, didn't have clinical mental illness, like a clinical depression or anxiety, are now experiencing their own levels of, of mental health challenges. And, and I don't know that we're, we're prepared for that. So I feel like that's, you know, almost going to be the next pandemic is, is, you know, mental health. And I think suicide rates are going up now because people are so isolated. So I think it's something that we really need to look at changing the system. But even again, you know, going back to my definition of leadership, of leaders being responsible for their own worlds, like check in with the people around you and, you know, take that step that, you know, be proactive, reach out, see how you can help in your own little circle whether it's you know socially or in the neighborhood or the community whatever it is see how you can be helping to to mitigate some of these symptoms you know whether it's you know calling people so they feel less isolated i mean people who are living alone you know when we were locked down they had nobody and so you know just seeing what you can do whether it's a phone call or a visit or you know now I mean here I'm in Canada and, and we're opening things up but going for a walk with people that kind of thing um, but just just checking in and seeing how you can be part of the change that needs to happen
0: absolutely and, and I, I again, I love your definition of leadership I think it's a very accessible one that everyone should embrace yeah So last question its kind of a two-parter. What's next for you and the business? Like, what do you see on the horizon? Um, And do you have any questions for me before we sign off? Hmm. Um,
1: So what's next for me is the book. The book that I said one day I'm going to write (laughs) suddenly seems to be, you know imminent. Now's the time. Now's the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, um, you know, and I've had a lot of time at home to think about what I'm doing. So that, that's going to be, that's something that, um, I'm beginning to work on. Um, and yeah, I would love to know what's next for you.
0: (laughs) So a book for me as well. Awesome. (laughs) I'm, I'm doing actually a few books. Um, so the way I kind of think about myself are as a entrepreneur and as a writer and recently I think in a lot of ways I've been um, slacking on the writer side of things. Um, I've really spent most of my 20s and I guess even the end of my late teens with entrepreneurial endeavors Um, and I just kind of want to double down on the writing. So um, coming out with a uh, relationship book, um, well, a trilogy. So um, the first um, called the Himalayan trilogy. Um, so I'm really excited to get started with the first one. And then uh, I'm also writing a book on entrepreneurship. And then um, a third book about Uh, my experiences as a uh, sickle cell patient or a sickle cell ward
1: oh wow
0: so um hopefully uh, and then i'm gonna do a little preview book where i have uh you know writing maybe like three chapters for each book that i have coming out um so doing a little collection for that um that's going to be called uh chasing 12 so hopefully i'm coming up with that before um we get into 2021 and then the the other books will probably just drop uh, in between quarters of uh 2021
1: wow good for you
0: so that's i'm amazing. very excited to read your book though as well thank
1: you i was just gonna say i'm excited to read your stories too yeah. and is the dating self-help like uh a self-help type book
0: or yeah. your own story so oh cool the, it's um my philosophies which i i think dating has just become i'm taking it from a, a sociological perspective the first one is going to be very practical mm-hmm. um in just terms of um the philosophy of the five r's which is reading responding um recovery and I'm messing up on my five bars. but um, all good <laughs> But brain freezes but um, just so that people how do you respond in relationships um, how you relate to people and how you relate to the world and how dating dynamics can translate into more than just dating or you know we call it the game here on game gurus mm-hmm. how it's more than just about um you know i think a lot of the perception about what it means to be a player or anything like that right where it's all about sex and people who actually do consider themselves players people like myself uh that's not what it's about at all um it, it, might be a byproduct but it's not the, it's not the core of what you're doing and how you're processing the world
1: wow okay um, i can't so, wait to read the book all of yeah.
0: them i'm excited for it um it's been a long time in the making and seeing the evolution and the behind the scenes story of it is very interesting i'll you know definitely uh share some of that with you you know off camera um but i'm i'm so grateful that you came on the podcast today it's definitely already one of my favorite episodes that we've done here on Game gurus
1: thank you so much and 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 i i'm so honored to be here and i this was such a great conversation so thank you so much for having me
0: definitely and um with that um we are out of here we're over time, it kept you, and we had technical difficulties before, but once again, so grateful. And um, thank you for the Game Guru audience. Please go support Michelle. Um, follow her on social media. Um, she posts great content. I recently just started looking at your, your Instagram, and just phenomenal. So thank you. Um, thank you for sharing your story, and thank all of you for uh, tuning in. And we are out of here until the next episode.